Well, hey, friends, it is great to be back with you today. I've been on vacation for a few weeks. Our family got away, and we went to Colorado, a little area called Crested Butte, and we spent time hiking and just enjoying God's beautiful nature and power revealed in that beautiful mountain region. Got to take our dog Titus along. He had a great vacation. I know that was really a concern of yours that Titus would be able to relax and unwind. Mission accomplished. And I know that you all had great messages delivered to you from Riley and Pastor Megan while I was gone. I was able to listen to those sermons on the ruthless elimination of hurry, and they did a terrific job. And so I'm super excited to be back and to jump in to this new, fresh, five-part message series with you that I'm calling Content, the Pursuit of Satisfaction in Christ. Before we jump into this message, I want to read to you a story from the Old Testament history book of 1 Kings, and it's found in chapter 21. So if you want to turn in your Bible or pull it up on your phone, it's also going to be on the screen. 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 1 through 19. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. So it says this. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he said, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal, and she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city, and she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast, and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him. And let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it is written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth as the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Ahab, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. 
Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. And this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful. Kindle in us the fire of your love. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open our hearts to you and all that you are offering us through Jesus Christ, our Savior, and God, our Father, today. Fall afresh upon us in this midsummer journey that we find ourselves on, seeking contentment in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a few months ago, through a strange set of circumstances, I found myself sitting at a table with a longtime family friend who's a generation older than me, and we were talking about books. I see this wonderful woman about once every year or two, and when we get together, I often ask her about what books she's reading, because she's always reading an interesting book, and I get good reading ideas from her. So she was telling me about this new book that was just coming out, about finding success in the second half of your life. Well, since I find myself stepping into the second half of my life, or thoroughly immersed in the second half of my life, depending on how long I'm going to live, God only knows. Anyway, this topic was very interesting to me. So I looked up this book online, I downloaded the audiobook, and it was so good that I ended up listening to it all the way through within a couple of days, and then downloading the, the real book, and then reading it through with my eyes, and highlighting sections of it. And although this book is not a Christian book per se, the author is a Christian, and he writes uh, many things from his Christian perspective. And the book is by Arthur C. Brooks, and it's called From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Your Life. And I've been recommending it to anyone over the age of 40 ever since I read it. And there's many concepts in the book that I found helpful or insightful for consideration, but there's one part that really stood out to me and that's really stuck in my mind since then, and I've been trying to apply it. And Brooks attacks or challenges this very commonly held, very cherished idea that's been a regular part of conversation in North America for several decades now. And it's the idea of the bucket list. And if you've never heard of the idea of a bucket list, it's a list of things that you want to do or places you want to go, things you want to accomplish before you kick the bucket, before you die. And Arthur Brooks is challenging this idea because he says that life and studies show that although maybe producing a bucket list might cause you to reflect on how you want to spend the rest of your life, that accomplishing items on your bucket list does not result in any lasting satisfaction. That when people put all this effort into accomplishing this thing that they thought they had to do before they died, normally they then move on to the next thing they want to accomplish. It doesn't resolve anything within them. And so he actually talks about having a reverse bucket list, different character qualities you want to eliminate in your life before you die. Now, I will be honest. 
I have a mental list of things that I would love to gain or attain or things I'd like to do before I die. But this book made me challenge myself to really look at those things differently and to accept the fact that I wouldn't find any lasting contentment or satisfaction in any of those things. And so I did this mental exercise where I, in my mind, went to the whiteboard in my mind and I erased all those things from my bucket list and I wrote one item only on that whiteboard. And it is this. Before I die, this is for me, Jason, I want to experience true contentment in Christ. Before I die, I want to know what it is to be truly satisfied and content wherever I am. And I want to gain that and then hold on to that and for that to be my state of being. I want to know and experience what Paul was talking about in Philippians chapter 4 verse 11 when he said, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Contentment is a, situa- is a, is a um, state of well-being that settles over a person and affects the way they see themselves, their life, and their circumstances. Synonyms for contentment are satisfied or fulfilled. Contentment could be described as being satisfied with who you are, what you have, and where you are, no matter who you are, what you have, or where you are. Contentment doesn't come from gaining and holding on to a state of perfection in your life. Neither does it have anything to do with being able to control things like other people or circumstances which are outside of our control. From a Christian point of view, contentment is found in being satisfied with who you are, what you have, and where you are because of who you have. And that is God. Through Jesus Christ and faith in him and what he accomplished on the cross, we come into relationship and covenant with God our creator, where we can say that we are his and he is ours. This is what the author of Hebrews was writing about in Hebrews 13 verse 5, when he says, keep your lives free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he, God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So in this sermon series, I'm not speaking to you from someone, as from the point of view of someone who's already gained contentment in some lasting, uh, imperturbable way, and now I'm telling you what to do. Rather, I'm speaking to someone who is on the pursuit of biblical contentment in Christ, and I'm inviting you to journey with me in the pursuit of it. But there's another reason why we really need to consider contentment. And that is because it's a matter of obedience and discipleship. It could be said that contentment is when you get to the point where you're no longer hampered by the tenth, uh, the sin that is mentioned in the tenth commandment of the Ten Commandments. You know what the tenth commandment says? Thou shalt not covet. And uh, specifically it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, 
or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. But what is covetousness? What does it mean to covet? Well, Timothy Tennant, the president of Asbury Seminary, says this, to covet something is to crave or to have an inordinate desire for something that you do not have. He says one of the most striking things about this commandment is that it does not focus on any outward activity at all. This commandment speaks to the matters and the condition of our hearts. He says comparing ourselves with others and wanting something or someone we don't have can give birth to coveting. Whether it's a position, a possession, or a person, we must keep ourselves free from such inordinate desires. He says, indeed, the 10th commandment represents a reorientation of our lives around the values of contentment, recognizing the needs of those less fortunate than ourselves, and drawing our identity and self-worth from Christ. So being content, it doesn't mean that we don't have goals and dreams that we're working toward. But it does mean that we choose our goals and our dreams carefully. That we're looking deeply at our heart and asking ourselves why we want to grab this thing, gain this much money, do this activity, go to this place. And we understand that our main goals should be for the betterment of society, for the betterment of others, and for the improvement of our own character and contentment in Christ. It means that we don't set our hearts on achieving or attaining things because we think that they'll bring a satisfaction that only Christ can offer. And in truth, the sin of covetousness is a killer in so many ways. The story of Ahab, king of Israel, that I read a few moments ago, it's a passage of scripture that always comes to mind when I think about how covetousness kills our contentment and our ability to enjoy anything. Have you ever wanted to be king? And you thought if you could be king and have all this power, things would be good. Well, Ahab is an example of how that is not the case. Ahab was the king of Israel in the ninth century BC. He was king over the 10 northern tribes and tribal regions of Israel. It's a lot of land. There was a lot of people. Back then, if you were king, it meant that you could basically have whoever or whatever you wanted, any time you wanted it. Money, sex, power over others to make people do things. Normally, you could have that. Most kings had multiple wives and living girlfriends known as concubines. Have you ever attained the idea of what you would do if you were king for a day? Well, being king wasn't enough for Ahab. There was a regular citizen of Israel named Naboth who had a vineyard next to the palace of Ahab. Even though Ahab had all this property and all this wealth and all this possessions, it wasn't enough. He wanted Naboth's vineyard for himself because he thought that would be a perfect place for my vegetable garden. So he goes to Naboth and he offers to buy or trade for Naboth's vineyard. But Naboth said this. In verse 3, he says, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Quite literally, it wasn't Naboth's to give away. 
The vineyard was part of the land that had been passed on to Naboth's tribal heritage uh, when God allotted the land to the people of Israel. It had been passed down to Naboth, and it would be passed on to Naboth's descendants. To, to give it to the king for profit, it would be to deny what God had done, and also it would be stealing from future generations. So he said, I can't do it. Well, then how does Naboth respond? Or how does Ahab respond when Naboth says no? Look at this, verse 4. Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. He's pouting. The king of Israel is pouting because this guy Naboth wouldn't give him his vineyard for a vegetable garden. Here we see what covetousness does. It destroys our ability to enjoy what we do have. It destroys our emotional well-being. It makes it impossible for us to be happy for other people and for what they have. Not only that, but covetousness can often destroy our ability to make sound moral judgments. Ahab's wife Jezebel, a famously wicked woman, comes to Ahab and asks him why he's pouting like a spoiled baby. And Ahab says, because I want Naboth's vineyard and he won't give it to me. And she says, are you not the king of Israel? Come on, get up, eat something. I'll get you that vineyard. And so she has this plan. She writes this letter in Ahab's name to these other city leaders. And he tells them to, she tells him to hold this public gathering and to seat Naboth in a prominent place, and then to hire two scoundrels, two worthless men, to bring public charges of blasphemy and treason against Naboth. Now, two people saying that they witnessed somebody do something, that was enough for someone to be found guilty. That's why we have the commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness, because two witnesses saying that they saw something was enough. And if he really did curse God and the king, he would be stoned. So she sends out these letters, and then what happens? The men do what she asks. They put Naboth in this public setting. They accuse him of blasphemy and treason, and then he is stoned to death. And then Jezebel goes to Ahab and says, now go and get your vegetable garden. Naboth is dead. And so look at what happens. Verse 16. As soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. And this is the great prophet of God who is in Israel at this time, Elijah the prophet. And the word of the Lord came to him saying, Elijah, arise, go down to meet Ahab the king of Israel who is in Samaria. Behold, he's in the vineyard of Naboth where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. And God did hold Ahab and Jezebel accountable for their sin against God and Naboth. Now this may seem like an extreme example of people doing things that we can never imagine that we would ever do. It should be noted, however, that this whole series of events transpired because of covetousness in the heart of a man who had 
everything a person could want. Covetousness led the way. We rarely consider, probably, that you shall not covet is one of the ten, the main ten things that God said we needed to obey. Coveting. Coveting other people's looks or possessions or spouse or power or prestige or popularity or wealth. It has had led millions of people to make terrible decisions with terrible results. It has resulted in lying, backstabbing, adultery, war after war, people giving up their family in pursuit of wealth or money, or trading in their spouse for another spouse, or convincing someone else to leave their spouse because they wanted their spouse. This is happening all around us every single day. And not only that, right here, right now, coveting what we don't have, you and me, even if we aren't doing these other things, it destroys our ability to be grateful for and content with what we do have. Covetousness and contentment cannot reside in the same space. So we're starting this journey toward contentment by naming this sin, which must be continually repented of if we ever want to attain contentment. So let me give these three summarizing applications as we start this journey. Number one is reject covetousness. Covetousness, like adultery or murder or blasphemy, is one of the ten big sins which destroy people's lives, which we must take seriously. Is there anything that someone else has or has done that you desperately want for yourself? If so, call a spade a spade. Covetousness if not repented of and confessed to God, it will demand to be fed like a hungry wolf until it attains the object of its desire. And then it will not be satisfied. It will move on to another object of desire. That's what it does. It must be fed over and over again. So rather than fuel it when you sense it, reject it outright. Confess to God. Ask for his mercy and his help. I love how the message translation of the Bible phrases Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17, where Paul says, Don't be wishing you were someplace else or with someone else. Where you are right now is God's place for you. Live and obey and love and believe right there. Number two is this. It's embrace contentment. I want to give you a question to wrestle with as we start this journey. Which would you rather have? All this stuff that you think you need in order to be happy? Or to simply be happy? We have to choose. Do we want contentment? Or do we want to keep chasing things? Thinking the pursuit of one more thing will eventually lead to happiness, even though the pursuit of the last thing did not create lasting happiness. The Apostle Paul said this in writing to his young protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. He said, true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. True godliness, that's sincere devotion to God, with contentment is itself great wealth. And that's what God would have us pursue. The great wealth of a spiritual life 
that pursues God and is content with what we have. If that's what we're pursuing, we don't even need what we currently have. We could be content with even less than this. Plato, the Greek philosopher, once said, he who is not contented with what he has will not be contented with what he'd like to have. You don't have to be a Christian to acknowledge that. The contentment does not come from achieving or gaining or experiencing more stuff or things. So embrace contentment as your goal for a while and let that goal lead you and see where it takes you. Number three is rely on Christ. In Paul's line in Philippians 4.11, he said, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And then a couple of verses later, he tells us how, how he's content. He says in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Through the Holy Spirit living within Paul, he is able to be content in every circumstance. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, who's able to do far more abundantly beyond all we could ask or imagine in us, through us, or around us, we really can obey God to forsake covetousness and be content in Christ. And this is the abundant life. The abundant life that Christ came to give us. It's not out there somewhere. It's not found on going to this destination or this vacation spot or getting these new things. It's found in Christ. It's available now. And this is what Christ wants for each of us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the wealth that we have in our relationship with Christ. I pray for your goodness and your power to flow into each and every one of us. Lord, set our hearts on you. Holy Spirit, give us a hunger for you and what you offer. Give us a deep hunger for your word and knowing you more in your word. Lord, help us be more concerned with the well-being of our neighbor than we are with more for ourselves. Because let us reject any idea that having more of anything other than you will bring us lasting contentment and satisfaction. And now, Lord Jesus, we pray that prayer that Jesus taught us as we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And now, friends, let us say with confidence what we believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Be sure to subscribe so that you can be notified of our most recent content. If you have any comments or questions for us, feel free to jump over to WashingtonCrossroads.com. Thank you again and have a great week.